Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So most of us would do almost anything for our kids to help them be their best, to help them get ahead. But what if even before they were born we could go in and alter their genes in such a way to give them an even greater advantage, to give them strength against illness and disease, to make them smarter or taller or prettier. Well, that world is coming. Who's tempted and who is horrified? Yes or no to this statement. Prohibit genetically engineered babies. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. I will be moderating as the four superbly qualified debaters you see on the stage argue for and against this motion. Two against two. Prohibit genetically engineered babies. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. Arguing for the motion, prohibit genetically engineered babies, Sheldon Krimsky. And Sheldon, you are a professor at Tufts University and chair of the Council for Responsible Genetics. Your very first book in this area was published in 1982. Uh, It was a social history of what was then considered a very, very controversial new technology, gene splicing, which, which could lead to the mistake that you are a geneticist, but actually you are a philosopher. A philosopher of science, and uh, I deal with issues of ethics and also contested issues in science. And, of course, genetics provides great material. Okay, and your partner is? My partner is Professor Robert Winston. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Winston. Robert, you are a professor of science and society at Imperial College London, uh, who not only did groundbreaking work in fertility studies, but also uh, in the field of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. However, Renaissance man, you have also very often been a TV host. You are an award-winning theater director, and very recently you were the star of a reality television show in which you learned to play the saxophone, set out to play the saxophone. So if we brought a sax out right now, you could blow a few notes for us? I would prefer the clarinet, I think. Clarinet. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing for the motion. And again, our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies, the two debaters arguing against it. Let's welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Nita Farahani. Nita, you are a professor at Duke Law, and you are a research professor at Duke's Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. But in 2010, uh, President Obama appointed you to the commission on the study of bioethical issues, and you're still on the member. So now that you've done science and you've done law, how are you liking politics? I think I'll be politic and not answer that. So you have debated before. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Nita Farahani. And Nita, uh, your partner is? My partner is the esteemed Lee Silver. Lee Silver, ladies and gentlemen. Lee, you are also arguing against this motion to prohibit genetically engineered babies. Um, You are a professor of molecular biology at Princeton. One of your landmark books was called Mouse Genetics, Uh, It's a book about mouse genetics. Um, 
And those are relevant because mice and humans share an astounding number of genes. It's a very high percentage, isn't it? I look at mice as little people. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Lee Silver. And those are our four debaters. On to round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. Our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. And here to argue first for the motion, Sheldon Krimsky, professor of humanities and social sciences at Tufts University. He is chair of the board of directors for the Council for Responsible Genetics and co-editor of the book Genetic Explanations, Sense and Nonsense. Ladies and gentlemen, Sheldon Krimsky. Thank you. Thank you very much. The proposition before us today, to me, means that prenatal genetic modification of human reproductive cells like sperm or eggs or fertilized eggs called the zygote in preparation for gestation in the womb and development to full-term infants should be prohibited at the societal level. And to this, I agree. There are two basic reasons to carry out such an intervention. One, for curing or preventing genetic disease, or two, for the enhancement of a person. For genetic diseases, in the great majority of cases, there are simpler, less risky, less costly, less ethically controversial, and more dependable methods of preventing the birth of a child with a severe genetic abnormality by using prenatal embryo diagnosis, that is, for diagnosing the embryos. Other than the exception, the only sensible rationale for engaging in genetic modification of the fertilized egg is for the enhancement of a child. Enhancement might include intelligence, resistance to disease, greater height, muscle strength, appealing personality, longevity, any number of things that you can imagine. Now, engaging in genetic modification of human gametes, the human reproductive cells for enhancement, is where I find the greatest moral failure and the greatest scientific folly. First, whatever enhancement is sought, the only method for determining whether it would work would be to engage in a clinical trial where you would have dozens of fertilized eggs or embryos, genetically modify half of them, carry them all to term, follow the development of the children throughout their lives to determine whether the intervention worked and at what expense to their health. From a biological and developmental standpoint, the so-called traits under consideration cannot remotely be enhanced by the modification of a gene or two. Traits like intelligence, personality, musicianship are complex and not only involve dozens, if not hundreds, of genes, but are the result of nutrition, social and environmental factors, genetic switches that are outside of the DNA, and the gene-gene interactions that occur in human cells. Scientists and the so-called transhumanists think of the human genome as a Lego set, where pieces of DNA can be plugged in or out without interfering with the other parts of the system. Actually, the human genome is more like an ecosystem, where all the parts interrelate and are in mutual balance. I am all for human enhancement, 
but it must start after an egg is fertilized, beginning in utero by protecting the fetus from toxic chemicals and continuing postnatally through environmental, nutritional, and cognitive enhancement. Enhancement through genetic engineering of human germplasm is a fool's paradise and will lead to no good. Thank you. Thank you, Sheldon Krimsky. Our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. And here to argue against this motion, Nita Farahani. She holds a joint appointment at, as professor of law and philosophy at Duke Law and as research professor at Duke's Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. She is also a member of the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. Ladies and gentlemen, Nita Farahani. I'm here tonight to represent my personal views and not the President's Commission on Bioethics, of which I'm a member, about why we should not prohibit genetically engineered babies. But first, I want to convince you of two things, that we already can and have safely genetically engineered babies, and that a middle ground of prudent vigilance, public oversight and debate about genetic engineering is better than prohibition. Throughout the evening, I'll defend why genetic engineering is no different in kind from the many ways that we already engineer our children, from the partners we choose to prenatal screening to the supplements we take that impact our children and their fates. But I want to convince you that we already can and have taken the next step of genetic engineering of babies, and if we would take a drastic step backwards to ban outright that technology. I'm going to tell you about inherited mitochondrial disorders, which are progressive and cause tragic health consequences. A little biology 101 should help frame the debate. About 98% of your DNA is nuclear DNA, but about 2% of your DNA is mitochondrial DNA, which supplies the energy to your cells. This nucleus of the cell is where 99.9% of the action is, but only if the mitochondria functions properly. About one in 5,000 babies born have problems with their mitochondrial DNA that cause rare but incredibly serious disease, including heart failure, dementia, blindness, severe suffering, and death. There is no way to treat the condition once it is acquired, and it is extremely difficult to predict how severely a child will be affected. Mitochondrial DNA, which is solely inherited from the mother, is often passed on to every child of an afflicted mother. Take, for example, Sharon, a woman who had a healthy pregnancy and who gave birth to a beautiful, healthy girl. 28 hours later, that baby died of an unknown disease. This tragic tale repeated itself five times as each of Sharon's babies lived for just a few hours. Only her son, Edward, survived, and by age four, he started falling over repeatedly. He'll spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair with little control over his muscles. You see, Sharon has Lee's syndrome, a rare mitochondrial disease, and she passed it on to all six of her children. The only way that Sharon or any woman with a high level of mitochondrial abnormality will have her own healthy genetic children is through genetic engineering of the babies. We'll talk about two techniques to do so, pronuclear transfer and and maternal spindle transfer that safely eliminate the risk of these diseases. At least 30 children have already been born in the United States using an earlier version of mitochondrial transfer. 
All of these children were born free of mitochondrial disease, and these newer techniques have even fewer risks than those earlier ones and promise even better outcomes for future generations. But mitochondrial genetic engineering proves my larger point that I want to convince you of this evening, that a middle ground approach is better than an outright ban. You'll hear my opponents talking about opening floodgates to a dystopia of designing perfect babies, but technology itself is not evil. Only misuse and misapplication of it is. We aren't here to defend every type of genetic engineering. We're here to urge you to vote in favor of a middle ground, to allow parents and private citizens to make private choices about one of the most intimate decisions they will ever make, to bring a healthy child into the world. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. Stay with us. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where the motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. You have heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third. In support of the motion to prohibit genetically engineered babies, Robert Winston, he is a professor of science and society and emeritus professor of fertility studies at Imperial College London. Ladies and gentlemen, Robert Winston. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is actually quite a simple proposition. What our opponents are recommending is something which Americans shiver at, which is experimentation without the consent of the individual being experimented upon. It's worth looking very briefly at American history. The history of eugenics, which started probably in Britain uh, with Francis Galton back in the 1850s, is still a scar to some extent on genetics. I think uh, had a great deal of responsibility for the sterilization of women without consent with the prevention of people uh, who might want to make love together because they are different races were prevented by law in many states in the United States. And this is something, of course, which directly influenced the Nazi uh, Holocaust. And although it may seem far-fetched, it's worth bearing in mind that at a time when the planet is oppressed by the risk of global warming, by the risk of conflict, by the risk of all sorts of serious issues on the economy it may well be that people might want to see eugenics raising its ugly head again. Now, as my partner has said, mitochondrial disease, let's just knock that on the head straight away. Mitochondrial disease, although it's a terrible thing to have, it is really trivial in terms of its incidence. It's a very, very uncommon disorder. And it's worth bearing in mind that abnormal children have been born as a result of mitochondrial transfer. This has been completely unpredictable. And, of course, with regard to disease, it is quite clear that screening embryos is a much better bet. If we take a cell away or we look at the biochemistry of an embryo, which we can now do, and detect the disease, we can simply substitute that embryo for another one in a clutch of eggs because, of course, it's worth bearing in mind that the average childbearing woman watching this program will lose two eggs during the course of the program, each genetically unique. The males, meanwhile, have made some 70,000 new sperm Each of those are equally genetically unique and every embryo is different and therefore to screen embryos which have a clear disease by the techniques which have now been developed is certainly possible and much safer than meddling with the genome. 
Now, the big problem, of course, is that genetic engineering is unpredictable. The most common place for genetic modified animals, of course, is in the pharmaceutical industry. Pretty well every drug is now tested on animals where their genes have been modified to make a model for human disease or to look at the action of that drug. And if you look at the figures which have been published by two of the largest companies in the world with very large series of mouse models, you can see the problem you'd have with genetic engineering. AstraZeneca published 51 different models, a vast number of mice in those models. 70%, ladies and gentlemen, of those animals were abnormal and the abnormality was unpredictable. The animals were not followed up for long term. They were simply discarded. So we don't know what would have happened them to in old age. But we do know that changing genetics makes a difference to what happens to us in old age and certainly the Fetal origins of adult disease are very important. We know, for example, that stroke, diabetes, some cancers may be caused by what happens in the environment of an embryo early on. So let's just say one other thing, if I may, and that is that one of the problems, of course, is that one may modify genes, but we don't even know whether they will continue to function in the way. And there is a lot of evidence from the work we do in my own laboratory which shows that gene expression in a modified animal stops during development. Ladies and gentlemen, you have a responsibility here. You have a duty to lead the world to make certain that your medicine is ethical. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Winston. And our uh, final debater against the motion, prohibit genetically engineered babies. He is against the prohibition. I'd like to introduce Lee Silver. He is a professor of molecular biology and public policy at Princeton. He is also founder and principal science advisor of GenePeaks, a personal genomics company. Ladies and gentlemen, Lee Silver. Thank you. The proposition this evening is prohibit genetically engineered babies. Prohibit even if the purpose is to promote health. Prohibit even if it's safe. Prohibit even if the technology is safer than doing nothing. I just need to convince you of one example of acceptability, and you should vote to oppose the proposition. So what are we talking about here tonight when we talk about uh, genetic engineering? Conceptually, it's very simple. Genetic engineering will allow prospective parents to give their child genetic information that they themselves do not carry. And to understand what parents might want to give their children, we should examine the facts of genetics that have become available to us over the last five to ten years, have given us a very different perspective on the human genome than we had previously. I want you to look at the person sitting to the right, and if there's no one on the right, look at the person sitting to the left, that person and you differ at over a million locations in your DNA. Most of those differences don't do anything, but even if you're a healthy adult, at least a hundred of those genetic variants can cause deadly childhood disease. Not in you, of course, because you're sitting in the audience, but in your grandchildren or their grandchildren. And all in all, some of us are born with better health genes and some are not. Now, if you have made a decision, you or a daughter or granddaughter have made a decision to have a child, what do you hope for the most in that child? You hope for a healthy child. You'll love any child, but you hope for a healthy child. But you might worry, doesn't this violate 
Mother Nature. Well, I'm here to tell you that Mother Nature doesn't care at all about you or your baby. Throughout the history of the human species, Mother Nature has engaged in all-out warfare against us with infectious diseases caused by viruses and bacteria. And it's only in the last century that we gained the knowledge and power to fight back with vaccines and antibiotics and other medicines. With infectious diseases essentially vanquished in our society, although not everywhere in the world, the next target in our sights is Mother Nature's genetic wrath. Now, Mother Nature is a metaphor, and it's a really bad metaphor, because in reality, inheritance is a game of craps. You throw the dice, you hold your breath, you hope your child is healthy. It won't have to be that way in the future. When we learn how to take the genetic dice, place them on the table in the way that is going to promote health most likely for the child to be. I want to conclude that if you are thinking about voting for this proposition, you'll need to explain why you did so when your daughter or granddaughter comes to you with the following question. Dad, grandpa, why can't I give my child health-promoting, disease-preventing genes that other children get naturally? If you can't answer that question, you must vote no on this proposition. Thank you, Lee Silver. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. And now we move on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address each other and take questions from me and you in the audience. Our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. The team arguing for the prohibition includes Sheldon Krimsky and Robert Winston. They have made an argument, as I hear it, that goes both scientifically and morally. The scientific argument boiled down is that genetics is an enormously complex field. It is not yet well understood that there is enormous potential for horrendous mistakes to be made. The crux of their moral argument is that the pursuit of a myth of human perfection is immoral and ultimately corrosive. The Nazis fell for it uh, with calamitous results. The team arguing against the prohibition says the immoral thing is to ignore the opportunity to use genetics as a tool to correct and avoid enormous uh, situations of pain and suffering that the United States will be left behind in something that has already begun to happen. And I want to begin with just this, this broad notion of the U.S. being left behind. Since we're talking about a prohibition, the side arguing against the prohibition says the net result of that would be to leave the U.S. behind that this train has left the station. Sheldon Krimsky, can you respond to that? Well, that's an all-purpose argument that you can apply for many things. Uh, we, we have all kinds of moral provisions in the United States. We don't allow the sale of organs. We prohibit certain experiments uh, with animals that are, are, are considered immoral. Uh, we can always use that argument and say somebody will, will be left behind. But we have to establish moral principles and safety principles that make sense to our scientific community and our uh, general society. Nita Farhani, your response. It's true that this is an argument one could make in nearly any area, but it's different in this one because this isn't just that other countries are doing it. It's that other countries have studied it. 
They have found it to be scientifically and ethically valid. The UK has the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority. Unlike the US, things happen there with oversight, public oversight. This organization held a long inquiry inviting scientific and ethical input. The Nuffield Council on Bioethics, likewise in the UK, looked into mitochondrial DNA transfer. What they urge the UK to do is to green light this technology and go ahead. We are not saying all genetic engineering. This particular type has the green light. We would be left behind if we decide to prohibit it. Robert Winston, your opponent. Well, it's nice to be able to answer Nita firsthand because, of course, I happen to be a member of the British Parliament, the the upper house, and uh, we voted overwhelmingly to abolish the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority because it's useless and actually it's inhibited It's inhibited research. It's not a very good way of regulating. So I don't think you should hold up the British model. What is needed, actually, what I think is needed is a consensus amongst all of us that we act as far as we can, ethically, and in the best interest of patients, whatever that might mean. Nita, do you want to respond? Sure, yeah. I I also agree we should act ethically, and the most ethical thing to do in circumstances where the only way to prevent a particular type of disease where we readily have a technology available is to give the green light to proceed, to have an open public debate about a technology, to have scientifically valid studies that are allowed to proceed This technology can save lives. It has saved lives. We would be taking a drastic step backwards. Sheldon Krimsky. Sharon was mentioned. I don't know her personally, and I'm so happy that she had a successful pregnancy. But she had choices. One of her choices uh, was to adopt someone else's egg. Uh, Another choice would be for her to adopt a child, which is certainly a desirable thing to do in a world where there's children who need adoption. What is the um, urgency of people to have their DNA in their child? In fact, most of the things that our children get do not get from our DNA. They get from all the enhancement that we give them. So there's this obsession that my child has to have my DNA. She did have some other choices. The risks that she took were real. Lee Silver. Um, I don't think we should discriminate against those people who, for whatever reason, are unable to reproduce and say, well, they don't have the ability, therefore they should be adopting or solving other uh, societal problems. I don't think that's fair because we don't ask ourselves to adopt, although a very, very few people do. So... I question the the alternative here. Sheldon, I, I want to put a, a question to you or Robert, whoever wants to take it, that your, your opponents in their opening statements focused primarily on enhancement that ameliorates negatives. It was They, they mostly talked about helping produce children who wouldn't have dreaded uh, illnesses, conditions, and diseases. Do you see a dis- the distinction between uh, a genetic intervention to avoid pain and suffering as opposed to making a Superman? Robert well, I think there's a, there's a very clear distinction, and I think the other side are absolutely right to concentrate on genetic abnormalities because, of course, uh, gene defects are appalling. Children in the main die of genetic defects. 
Uh, a few of them, like mitochondrial diseases, don't always kill people, but they often have uh, major effects on the central nervous system. If we could prevent them or treat them more effectively, we should do so. So do you concede that point to them? But I, think it, but I think the problem really is that, first of all, there will be enhancement, and I think that's risky. And the difficulty really is that in preventing one genetic disease, you're likely, very likely, to cause another genetic disease. So, so you are genes. not conceding the point that intervention... <laughs> no, no, I, no, no, I'm not... I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm actually not looking conceding for the point, but I can under, I, what I'm saying is it's a seductive point, and I can understand why they're concentrating on it, because the rest of their argument is bound to be very weak. Uh, Nita Farahani. There's, uh, Nita, there is no Nita, rest of the argument. Our argument is that people all differ... We have, disease, we have genes that uh, are different from each other in promoting or preventing disease, and uh, we think that on that ground, parents should have the right to be able to promote health. Sheldon, know, we have a very, we have a very uh, elaborate system in this country uh, allowing or not allowing people to be involved in clinical trials. There's safety issues that have to be taken care of. There's institutional review boards. The, it, now, if you were a woman who wanted such procedures to be done, one of the first questions you would ask is, has this been done uh, within a clinical trial setting with the government's imprimatur, or is this being done uh, at a hospital that has really no accountability to any national bioethics uh, system? In fact, these experiments were done in violation of a de facto rule by the federal government because they used private funds. So there is really not a good clinical trial that was used to suggest that these procedures were safe. There's a lot of risks that these women took. I, I'm so Peter glad Honey. that you raised the fact that there's no government funding for this because the best way that we can actually have public oversight and insight into what's happening in science is by actually having transparency. It's true. Most of the different techniques that have been that have been studied in the U.S. have happened via private companies. What that does is ensure that there's no opportunity for public oversight. All we have to do is simply fund that research in order to have public oversight. With public oversight, you ensure safety and efficacy. You ensure the ethical pro- process of science, and you ensure the ethical use of this technology. Let's go to some questions right here on the aisle, sir. I'm Robert Klitzman from Columbia University. Great debate. Question for the opponents. I'm wondering if we should be allowed to uh, enhance children genetically, not perfect them. But, for instance, many parents say they'd like to have kids who are blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Should that be allowed? Should there be a line drawn anywhere in terms of enhancement? And if so, where? Well, in in fact, we've actually done a poll where uh, parents, uh, in fact, don't believe that. Um, What most parents want is children that resemble themselves, just a little bit prettier and a little bit smarter. That's what parents want. Um, The blonde hair, blue eyed thing is is fiction. Let me just add to that. that, um, The enhancement versus therapy distinction is really just a red herring. So if I improve somebody's health, have I enhanced them? And, And the truth is, Every improvement that we've had in our health 
over the past century and more has been an enhancement. So do parents want to enhance their children? Of course they do. They give them better education. They give them prenatal vitamins. They, you know, do prenatal yoga and every other type of thing to try to, you know, make things better. They take headphones and play music for their children during, you know, the gestational period. So do parents want to enhance their children? Yes. Do they already do it? Yes. Should genetic engineering that enhances their health be permitted to go forward? Yes. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Four panelists are arguing for and against this motion. Prohibit genetically engineered babies. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Welcome back to the program. Okay, I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters arguing out this motion, prohibit genetically engineered babies. Right in the very center. My name is Maria Tazzi. So science is science, and science will always have its uncertainty. But at the end of the day, this is a very emotional issue. And prohibition, what we know from history, is that people do dire things when they really want to. Coat hanger abortions or bootleggers. So um, what do you tell the woman who's about to go get the equivalent of a coat hanger abortion? I, I just want to say with respect that I think you kind of confused the issue by, by the linkage to a coat hanger abortion when in the case of, the, of seeking a therapy, it might be the situation that, that people will go offshore or that the wealthy will go offshore, which was a point that was brought up earlier, because I, I, don't, I don't know that there's going to be a back alley you know, geneticists work in this. Well, so I'd like, so in that case, I'd like we, to rephrase the question to this side, that if, if, in pra- if, if the technology, in particular, as Nita Farahani had said, the U.S. being left behind, if it's going to be available overseas in safe clinical settings, but you have to be rich to get there or connected, what are you going to say to the women who can't get there? And I'll put that to Sheldon Krimsky. Genetically modifying human reproductive cells is a totally new frontier. It has lots of risks, And its risks are not only to the individuals who are involved in it. Its risks are to the society as a whole. The last thing you want to do is to provide a technology that could be misused by uh, authoritarian societies for their own functions. And this is a totally novel frontier that we should be extraordinarily cautious about in, in trying to break through. Nita Farhani, do you want to respond to the uh, questioners? I, I think that um, the answer was not particularly forthcoming in addressing what happens when people who are desperate, particularly women, for example, who have mitochondrial disease, who are going to pass it on to every one of their children and want to have a choice to have a genetic child, what are they going to do? Well, they will go abroad. The technology will go abroad. And what does a prohibition then look like in this country? What we're arguing for here is not adding in genomes outside of the human genome into children. We're arguing that the babies would look identical to ones that are already in our population. So how are we going to detect those differences? And what is the society that prohibits it like going to look like? Is it forcible sterilizations? Is it forcible genetic testing? How are we going to detect it? How are we going to enforce it? And is that a kind of society that we want where we intrude that deeply into our private lives. Sir, down the front here. Hi, my name is Harlan Milkov, and my question is, is there a concern that through genetic engineering, a 
defect in, in DNA could be introduced that isn't known until several generations later, by which point there's potential damage to the gene okay. pool that uh, could affect This side has actually said that it has that concern. So let me have you okay, put your sure. question to this side. Uh, the, Sheldon, the question is whether a defect Silver. can be introduced in, in, into the genome. Um, let's compare what already exists. In your genome, there are defects. You have 100 mutations that cause childhood disease. You have deletions of genetic information. So you have all sorts of defects in your genome right now. We're talking about uh, technology which we all think should be done only when it's proven safe and effective. Um, Sir. Jamie Metzl. First, thanks to Intelligence Squared for this incredible debate, I believe. As many of us here, this is one of the most important issues that our species will face in our future, so it's great that we're having this important conversation. The arguments of both sides seem to rely on pre-implantation genetic diagnosis process, in the case of the affirmative for screening and in the negative um, uh, for engineering. My question is, uh, does this mean that by both of your arguments, in the future, sex will be a form of recreation Uh, but IVF will be the preferred form of procreation for advantaged people. Sex is already a form of recreation. (laughs) We're all looking at the British guy. We answered it from our side already. I got the impression it was a rhetorical question. Yeah, I think it was a rhetorical question, and I got a a good laugh. Ma'am. The debate is focused properly, I think, on ethical and practical questions, but I have a question about rights. So what right, if any, does a potential parent have to access these technologies such that a ban would violate those rights? Nita Varhani, do you believe in a right issue? If your question is, is there a constitutional right to access technologies, I'd say no. If the question is, is there a natural right that people should have over procreative liberties, over the choices that they make about having children, who they mate with, and whether or not they bring a healthy child into the world? I think that that is the most fundamental of rights that a person has. Um, we're being live-streamed on Fora.tv, and people uh, who are watching us are sending in questions, and I want to read one that's just been handed to me, and it's uh, for Lee Silver. What about a scenario where employers would only hire enhanced people because they will be less prone to issues? Isn't there potential to create a fragmented society where only privileged populations can afford it? Lee Silver. Well, that's the Gattaca scenario of... Um people being evaluated solely on their genes. I don't think it's realistic because an employer is always going to look at the productivity and the, the, the past um, performance of a person when they hire because that's much more, much stronger than whatever genetic predisposition they might have. Robert Winston, your opponent. 112 years ago, one of the most famous British scientists ever, Lord Kelvin, said you can take it from me Heavier than air flight is impossible. (laughs) Two years later, Orville Wright flew his biplane. I would strongly recommend that you don't ask scientists at all ever for predictions. We're no more capable of predicting where we will be in five years than anybody else. It's a massive mistake. That's why we have to act responsibly now. Going to come to another question. (laughs) Young man. I, I hope you won't think it condescending for me to ask you what grade you're in. Uh, seventh grade. All right, good for you for being here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this question is directed towards Mr. Silver, and you t- just touched on um, the topic of safety. And I was wondering, 
to what extent does safety mean for this like thing to go into well, uh, effect? Safety is very important. But um, what, what does safety mean? What does safety mean? Yeah. Uh, s- safety is relative. I think that's the most important point. Reproduction is dangerous. If a technology can come along that can make reproduction less dangerous, that's a technology we should embrace. Uh, you know, we have Sheldon a system Kinsky. of safety uh, on drug safety, for example, in the United States. And you wouldn't expect people to just be taking drugs that have not gone through clinical trials and a government regulatory agency. But yet we've heard that there were these experiments that were done without any government imprimatur. We have no idea what the safety controls were or how far along in the life cycle of the child that was born that we have to investigate. So I think safety is very important and any society has to set up the standards of safety before they do any kind of test. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. On to round three, closing statements. Our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Lee Silver. He is professor of molecular biology at Princeton and author of the book, Challenging Nature. Um, a friend of mine here was introduced to me by another friend of mine here who had a baby with a sperm donor. I met her in, in 2009. And a few days after her child's birth, she got a call from her doctor who told her to go into the bedroom to, to check on her sleeping baby to see if he was still alive. The baby had been born with MCAD deficiency. He had inherited this mutation from from both my friend and the sperm donor. And the mutation was in her genome, and it had been in the genome of her family for hundreds of years, at least. And it was silent. Nobody knew about this mutation. With a particular dietary plan, my friend's son is now a healthy five-year-old boy, and she and her wife decided to, to have another child with a sperm donor. So they went to the sperm bank and uh, tested the, the new donor that they were going to use, and they found the donor was free of mutations in the NCAD gene, which, which the genetic counselors said would, uh, should ease her mind. But, in fact, that shouldn't have eased her mind because MCAT is just one of the hundreds of mutations that she actually has in her genome. So even if the sperm donor had not had MCAD mutation, it's just as possible that he had another mutation that was not compatible. So that's the important point that I want to make here that is uh, very important for, for all of us to remember. There's no perfect baby There's no perfect person. There's no perfect genome. We are all just a combination of many different genetic variants that makes us different from each other for better and for worse. Thank you, Lee Silver. The motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. And here to summarize his position in support of prohibition, Sheldon Krimsky. He is a professor at Tufts University and chair of the Council for Responsible Genetics. So it is perfectly understandable why parents would want to provide as much enrichment to their child as possible to ensure their success in life. But prenatal genetic engineering is not enrichment of a newborn. It is an effort to redesign the human genome. 
Science has succeeded in applying genetic modification for enhancement to animals and crops. Some would say successfully, others would say the jury is still out. But in the hundreds and thousands of trials that failed, we simply discard the results of the unwanted crop or animal. Is this the model that civilized humane society wishes to apply to humans? Make pinpoint genetic alterations in the human germplasm and discard the results when they don't work out. It is sheer hubris to think that manipulating the human germplasm for enhancement will not produce mistakes. I have, uh, uh, leave you with one story. A little over 10 years ago, scientists discovered that by modifying a mouse's gene, it greatly improved the mouse's memory. Subsequently, they also learned that modification produced a mouse that had increased sensitivity to pain. Some decisions appear ethical from a pinpoint perspective, but the clearly unethical from a wider lens. For this, we have to look at the wider lens of genetic engineering and not at the pinpoint perspective in order to understand its ethics to society. Thank you. Thank you, Sheldon Krimsky. Our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. And here to summarize her position against this motion, against prohibition, Nita Farahani. She is a professor at Duke Law and a research professor at Duke's Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. This debate is quite personal to me, and I'd like to share why with you. In 2001, I attended the wedding of a dear friend. Two years later, she developed thyroid cancer, and she underwent radioactive iodine treatment. The next year, when she and her husband started to try to have children, she learned that she had substantial mitochondrial abnormalities that she would pass on to each and every one of her children. She underwent mitochondrial transfer and now has a beautiful and healthy son made possible by this technology. We don't know if the radioactive iodine caused those abnormalities. What we do know is that she now has a child, healthy, active, and bright, from a technology that is available and we have already used. In 2010, I also received radioactive iodine therapy for thyroid cancer. When I'm ready to have children, I hope that I also have the option of having a healthy child with whatever the best technology is that we have available to us today. I'm not here to defend every type of genetic engineering, and I don't think we're ready as a society to embrace it all. But we already know that there are certain forms of genetic engineering that are safe and effective to use. And what I urge you to do is vote against the resolution, to vote in favor of scientific progress, to vote to enable each of us as private citizens to make private choices in the most intimate choice we will ever make in life to bring healthy children into this world. Thank you. Thank you, Nita Farahani. Our motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion to prohibit, Robert Winston. He is a professor of science and society and emeritus professor of fertility studies at Imperial College London. Ladies and gentlemen, don't be seduced by a single, very heart-rending story that is really not at issue here. There's a big issue for the whole of our society and for people in general. I regret to say 
that I'm saddened to see this simplistic argument about mitochondrial DNA from the other side. We don't understand the interactions in the egg with the mitochondria, and already we've seen a number of horrid mishaps. So, of course, maybe a particular individual was lucky, but they might have been unlucky, how different we would have been then. We've heard that people have a right to have a healthy child. Of course, they don't have a right, sadly, to have a healthy child. What we do have a right to, though, in a democratic society, surely, is to have access to the best and the safest treatment. And at the moment, the safest treatment is certainly not meddling with the genome. It is actually to look at every other way of dealing with these terrible diseases. And it's worth bearing in mind, too, that we're not going to eradicate genetic defects by doing this, not remotely. New defects occur all the time. As Lee Silver rightly points out, all of us have defective DNA. 30% of boys born with the male form of muscular dystrophy have this as a new mutation, as he well knows. No amount of pre-implantation diagnosis would have changed that. The question is how we deal with these diseases, actually, when we have them. Thank you, Robert Winston. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it is time to learn which side you feel has argued the best. I want to say uh, that this has been a spectacularly, uh, spectacularly well-argued debate by both sides. I just want to invite a round of applause for them for what they did. All right. We now have the final results in. Remember, you voted twice before the debate and again after hearing the arguments. The team that changes the most minds in a percentage way will be declared our winner. The motion is prohibit genetically engineered babies. Let's look at the results for the team that was arguing for this motion to prohibit. Before the debate, 24% agreed, 30% were against, and 46% were divided. That was the preliminary vote for everybody. Now let's look at the vote that the team arguing for the motion received in the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, the second vote is 41%. That's an increase of 17%. That is the number that the other team needs to beat. It needs to beat 17%. Let's see how the other team did. Before, they were 30%. They went up to 49%. That's a 19% difference. They just squeaked by. The team arguing against prohibition of genetically engineered babies carries this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. That's IQ, the number two, us.org. To hear the full, unedited version, or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org forward slash Intelligence Squared. Additional support for this debate comes from the Richard Paul Richmond Center for Business, Law, and Public Policy, a joint venture of Columbia Business School and Columbia Law School. Intelligence Squared U.S. is supported by the Rosencrantz Foundation and distributed by NPR. NPR.